to both week three and week four of our six-week topic. We are going to look at... Oh, I have one extra copy of the sheets here, actually. In case anybody still doesn't have it, we'll put it up there. Um, we are going to look at the conclusion of our discussion about Zionism and racism, UN Resolution 3379. Uh, and then after that, we will shift gears to talk about the election of Menachem Begin. Now, it is not lost on me that we're, you know, not keeping up with our, with our schedule, because the first topic ended up being an hour and a half, and ever since then, we've been thrown off. But I do expect that next, by the end of next week's session, uh, we will actually be on time. I believe that, uh, that by then we will be. I believe many things, <laughs> but I think that's true. Okay, so so we start out with the, the topic that we started on last week, the Zionism and racism issue, and we talked about the UN resolution. We actually read the, uh, the UN resolution on the topic, as well as the troubling letter uh, that was issued regarding Christians owning land in Israel, in which uh, some municipal rabbis had actually said, you're not allowed to, to sell homes or even rent homes to people who are not Jewish. And so he said, well, on the one hand, we're horrified by this very political UN resolution issued in 1975, which equated Zionism and racism. It was very clearly uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. I'm not a fan of the phrase anti-Semitic, because of course you you know, Arabs are Semites also. So uh, anti-Jewish and, uh, and anti-Israel. But on the other hand, you have to ask yourself, is an element of racism inherent when you want to have a state that is going to be a, uh, a Jewish state? Racist in the sense that we will have certain elements of discrimination potentially from a perspective of halakha, from a perspective of Jewish law. There may be some kind of separate treatment for your family as opposed to other human beings. And number two, from a demographic perspective, the... Um, you know, when we say we need to maintain a, a Jewish state, and if you were to say that all the Arabs can come in, then they can very quickly overwhelm us. Um, but on the other hand, what would we think of a, uh, of a, a country that bans Jews, right? There are countries that ban the practice of Judaism. What would we think of a country that bans Jews in the interest of maintaining a, uh, a Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever uh, majority? So we went through the history of the resolution. We went through the responses at the time uh, to, the, uh, to the resolution. But I want to now tackle the actual question here of can you run a Jewish state that is not going to discriminate between Jews and, uh, and, and Arabs? So in order to do that, we have to first ask ourselves a question. Um, what does a racist government look like? Syria. No, I, I didn't want examples. I'm not looking for examples, although, yeah. They, um, but but what is what what does racism look like when there is such a when, when there's government-sponsored racial discrimination? You look at South Africa, sort of previously, I guess. Right. So, not, so not giving uh, voting rights to minorities. So not giving voting rights to, to minorities would be an example. Segregating Sorry? Segregating. Segregating where people can live, right? See, narrowly, to use the term racist narrowly, so it's assigning rights and roles within society based on a particular ethnic background. But more broadly, 
it's assigning rights and roles based on any standard that relates to heritage. That's really what it, what it comes down to. And those rights and roles may be government, the ability to vote, or the ability to run for office, um, may relate to land ownership, economic opportunity, social access, um, access to public facilities, right? The right to attend university, for example, right? All of these sorts of rights and privileges, access to education more broadly, um, a, a racist society, using the broad definition, meaning not limiting it to race, um, deprives people from a particular heritage of political roles, access to places to live, economic opportunity, social events, public facilities. That's what we're talking about. And then the question would then be, does that, is that necessarily a part of life in a Jewish state? Is there really going to be that kind of discrimination? I, I raced into starting and I forgot to say it, but uh, we're going to dedicate the, uh, the, the learning this morning in memory of Dora Garman, whose, uh, whose funeral is, uh, is today. The, um, so, so let's ask the question. Why would Zionism be, or why would a Jewish state be racist? Why would that be necessary? Yeah. Well, I think if we're going to be a Jewish state, we aren't that big a group like Catholics all over the world, so the Pope can do something in Rome and still have the, the city be um, non-racist. But if we give that up, then, and then we have nothing that makes it. Right. The, the practical argument is one piece of it. But I want to talk about it from a philosophical standpoint. See, there's a classic myth which I want to, which I want to address in order to discount it. And it's called the Hamitic myth. You familiar with this? The Hamitic myth goes back to somebody in the Torah who's named Ham, or Ham, as it gets written in, uh, in English. Who was, who was Ham? Son of Noah, right? Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yefet, right? Shem is the one we come from, right? Semitic, descendant of Shem. The, uh, Yefet is supposed to be the ancestor of various European nations, including most famously the Greeks. And then you have Ham. And in the story immediately following the flood, right, we find after Noah brings his sacrifices to God and God approves of Noah and says he's never going to destroy the world again, Noah goes out and gets drunk. Right? Why he did it is a great discussion, not important for our, for our discussion right now. But he gets drunk, he's exposed in his tent, he is discovered by, it seems, by Ham, his son Ham, who then goes to tell his brothers, and his brothers very properly cover up the father. Noah's reaction, once he sobers up, is found in source number one on your sheets. And he said, Cursed is Canaan, a slave of slaves he shall be to his brethren. He does not curse Ham, he curses Canaan. And based on various works in the biblical verses on that spot, such as it says Noah woke up and he recognized what had been done to him by his youngest son, the suggestion that's brought by the rabbis in the Midrash is that actually the humiliation of Noah came about not through Ham, but through his son, 
his youngest son, Noah's youngest grandson, Canaan. So Canaan was the one who humiliated Noah, and Noah's response is to declare, he shall be a slave of slaves to his brethren. Well, this line was quoted by preachers in North America, largely Christian, although some Jews as well, as justification for African slavery. It was quoted as justification. Look, it's biblical. Noah said, slave of slaves, this shall be to his brethren. What's the problem? Sorry? The problem is he got the wrong son. Ham had four sons. Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Canaan is the ancestor of the Canaanites, who the Jews met when they came into their land, which would become Israel, ultimately. Mitzrayim is Egypt. Cush is Ethiopia. If you're going to associate a biblical curse of Canaan with enslavement of Africans, you're on the wrong continent. If this verse is to be taken as anything regarding slavery at all, it's regarding Canaanites. It's not regarding Africans. So the application is simply incorrect. uh, Nonetheless, there were those who used this and argued that Judaism should endorse um, African slavery. And from this you have have what what could have led to um, Jewish involvement in the slave trade. And the truth of the matter is, I brought you a source in in source number two from Professor Salo Baron at Columbia, um, who made the point that Jews were involved in the slave trade. Not in unusual numbers, not even matching the representation within society, um, but it's true that Jews were involved in the slave trade. You can't get around it. There's actually, it's not in the piece that I quoted here, um, but there, there is actually evidence that there was a, a slave auction at one point in the colonies uh, that was scheduled for Rosh Hashanah, and it was pushed off so that Jews would be able to, uh, to participate in the auction. The... Um, if you're familiar with Ismar Shorsh, Ismar Shorsh was the head of JTS, past head of JTS. His son, Jonathan, lived in my community in, uh, in Rhode Island and did his doctorate at Brown University on Jewish involved, Jew, black-Jewish relations in those centuries. And he did a lot of research on this. And while it's true that, as noted by Baron in source number two, there were also Jews who were active in the abolition movement, uh, you can't get around the fact that Jews were involved in the slave trade but my point is these are not about Judaism these are things that Jews did but they're not truly founded in a Jewish ideal the Hamitic myth is a myth it's not, it's not founded in the biblical text in, uh, in number one. Judaism certainly has, biblically, has slavery in it, but it's not the North American model for a whole host of reasons, beginning with the fact that you're not allowed to abuse a slave in the Torah's, uh, in the Torah's presentation of it. But having gotten rid of the black-white grounds for that and uh, that element of racism, you still have a fundamental problem when we talk about Zionism and racism, in terms of the distinction made between worshippers of the Jewish God and worshippers of idols. Take a look, please, at source number three. Maimonides, in his list of the Torah's commandments, records prohibition number 51. 
The 51st mitzvah is that he, God, warned us not to settle idolaters in our land, lest we learn from their heresy. Quotes the biblical verse from Exodus, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they cause you to sin against me. If a non-Jew wishes to live in our land, we may not permit this until he agrees not to worship idols. Then he may live there. So if he worships something which I don't believe in, right, which I consider to be idolatrous, then I can't give him space in my land. And from this you see a passage in the Talmud in source number four. There's a biblical verse that says, Lo tichanem, which the text of the Talmud here reads as, Do not show them a favor, don't give them chen, but also, don't give them chanayat, don't give them a camp in the land, do not sell them land. So here's the question now. Now we have a little more information. Aside from the practical concern of if I'm not going to discriminate, will they overwhelm us? We won't have a Jewish state anymore, which is one element. But there's also a religious element to it. And so now again, we come back to our question. Was the United Nations correct? Does having a Jewish state, not racism in the sense of, of, of black and white, but does it require religious discrimination? Judith. <laughs> Mm. So, right. Judith makes the point that you can't really ask the question of, is the United Nations right with a straight face? Because the reality is, if this was really their concern, if their concern was truly, hey, those Jews aren't going to allow Christians, Hindus, whatever, to have space in their land, if they were serious about that, then they would take on Jordan. And they would take on Saudi Arabia. They would take on all the other countries that do the same thing. So you're right. We're not really asking the question of, is the United Nations to be taken as a serious moral authority? But we do have to ask the question about the resolution. Is the resolution correct? I, you can make the argument that yes, the resolution is correct. And in which case, those of us who don't want to be racist have a problem. How do, we, how do we reconcile our vision of a Jewish state with this? So the truth is that there are several different approaches that, um, that, that, that have been taken to this, uh, to this problem. One approach is to say, yeah, you're right. There's no way around it. That's one approach to look at it. And say, look, remember that the Torah spends a lot of literary real estate trying to establish why God gives the Jews the land of Canaan in the first place. Why does God give us that land? What's that about? Why does God give the Jews that land? For us to worship God? That's not what he says. Why does God take the Jews into this land in the first place? Why not Uganda? Mm. Not because it's closest to the desert. Because it's a holy land. Not what the biblical text says either. Yeah. To get rid of the uh, idolatry and the types of worship that the Canaanites. There we go. So Ruth points out that when you look in the Torah, we actually get an introduction not just to the Jews in the beginning, but to our neighbors. Much of the beginning of the Torah, by Avram Ibn Ezra pointed this out, much of the beginning of the Torah is dedicated to introducing us to the neighbors, 
to what Canaan is like. And we start out with Canaan and what he does to his grandfather, right? The humiliation of his grandfather Noah. And then from there we move into the story of Sodom and how brutal they are towards visitors. And we move into the story of Shechem and the, the kidnapping and rape of Dina. What's going on in the book of Breshit, the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Torah, is in part an introduction to positive role models in terms of our patriarchs and matriarchs. This is the behavior you're supposed to emulate. And in part, an introduction to Canaan and a statement of these are people who have built a society that is so immoral, that is so abusive, not only that it's idolatrous, although that's a major element of it, but that, that, that relates to other people in such an abusive way that God says, I'm bringing you into this land not because you're wonderful, but because you are going to be my tool to eliminate the society that has sprung up in this holy land and start from scratch. So that when the Jews come into the land, they are told to make an offer to all the nations who are there. No one has to die. There does not need to be war. But you're going to have to agree to the seven Noahide laws. One of which is don't kill. One of which is don't steal. One of which is don't engage in sexual immorality to uproot what has developed in that land. If you take a look at source number five, you find it explicit in the text in Deuteronomy. God is speaking to the Jews here as they're standing on the banks of the Jordan, about to enter the land. And he says, not due to your righteousness and the straightness of your heart do you come to take their land. But due to the wickedness of these nations, does your God take them from before you? That's what it's about. Now, let's not kid ourselves. Um, This is judgmental. This is, we have a standard, this is what we think is right, and God has told us that this is the way the world should be. Don't kid yourself, the Muslims think the same thing. Right? They all think the same thing. I'm not, yeah, there's no way around that. But that's what drives the initial war, um, the, the, that's what drives the, the initial war against those nations who are in the land. We talked about this. We talked about the whole ethnic cleansing problem a few years ago when we discussed war uh, in, a, uh, in a mini-series here. But that's what leads to the discrimination between the groups. To say, this isn't something we can have in our land. God brought us here in order to get rid of it. That's the idea. I'm, just, I'm looking at the time and recognizing that I want to get to the next topic, and I don't want to speed through this. So the sacrifice I'm going to have to make is on the, is on, is on the, uh, the crowd comments for the moment. We're going to come back to let people get their feedback in. But that's the, that's the starting point, is the Jews are told, you're getting this land, and I want you to create a different society there. And in order to do that, you can't have people who are going to develop their different cultures, their idolatrous cultures in the land. Don't let them have a uh, a space there. But again, you can't do that. That may have worked 3,500, 4,000 years ago, but that doesn't work today. So what happens? So there are three different approaches. The pragmatic, the technical, and the philosophical. The pragmatic approach was championed by, among others, Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi Herzog, 
who was the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And he made the argument that it's not in anybody's best interests for Jews to decide to discriminate in the land of Israel. You will not serve the needs of the world this way, and you will not serve the needs of your own society in this way. Don't kid yourself. If you take a look at source number six, he's, uh, this is an article written, as you see, in 19, it's published in 1981. It had to have been written long before that. The, uh, he, I don't think he was alive anymore in 1981. But the, uh, it's an article he had written, which in Hebrew is called Zechuyot Hamiyutim Lefi Halakha, which means minority rights within Jewish law. And he addresses here in source number six the question of what to do about non-Jewish religions sprouting up in Israel. And he says, what should we do? To tell the nations we can't accept this condition because our sacred Torah prohibits a Jewish government from allowing Christians and certainly pagans to dwell in our land. And further, it prohibits us from allowing their worship in our land and it prohibits us from allowing them to acquire land. I cannot imagine finding a rabbi in Israel with a brain and straight intellect who would think we should respond with this, meaning that this is the Torah's duty for us. Even if we would allow that accepting a state with such a condition would violate a prohibition in upholding that condition, even if you're going to tell me that this is wrong from the perspective of Jewish law, even still, I would say, the transgression would be overridden by concern for saving the nation of Israel, noting our nation's position in the world. It's a pragmatic point of view. He says, you may be right that this is what we should do, but it's a really grotesquely bad idea. And I'm not willing to, 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 to put it forward, he says. And he notes, still in the same article, in number seven, he says, if the whole point is, don't allow them in your land because they're going to cause you to sin, recognize that if you try to discriminate, you will not have a country for long. You will end up back in exile living among the nations. And you don't think they're going to cause you to sin then? How did exile work out for you for a couple of thousand years? Do you think that things were, were, were just fine that way? So this is a very practical view. He's going to say, even if the ideology behind Zionism should lead me to discriminate, in practice it's a really bad idea. That's one approach. Second approach says, you may not be reading the text correctly when you apply the text to our circumstances. Revaron Lichtenstein, in source number eight, wrote a letter in response to the letter we read last week. Last week we read the letter that said that you can't sell land to, uh, to people who hold other religions in Israel. So he wrote a response. And this is a translation of his response. Rabbi Eli Fisher in Israel wrote the translation. I gave you the link where you could find the full thing online. But I brought you an excerpt. He says, you know, this letter that was written that argues that Jewish law won't allow me to rent them and to sell them and all that is taking one narrow view within Jewish law. Anyone who has ever studied anything about Jewish law knows that there's nothing monolithic. There are multiple points of view. You took one point of view and used that as an anchor for a letter that you're going to publish for the world, and you skipped everybody who disagrees. He says, any position or opinion that could have been relied upon to moderate the stance taken in the letter simply doesn't exist. It's like there's no other view. There is no mention of Rivet's position 
antagonistic to the view of Bambam of Maimonides that limits the prohibition to the seven aboriginal nations of Canaan. In other words, when we are told about, about not allowing them space in our land, there's a prominent view in Jewish law that says it's not talking about non-Jews in general, it's talking about those seven original Canaanite tribes who have long since ceased to exist. And he says, for some reason, the opinion of the Tosafists, authorities writing in the 13th century, 12th and 13th century, that if a Gentile is willing to pay a higher price than a Jew for a property, there is no prohibition against selling it to him. You can sell it to him. He's the highest bidder. So that's been ignored. At the same time, the letter never addresses the position among the Rishonim, the early authorities, based on Baba Batra, that the prohibition against leasing is limited to craftsmen who wish to set up shop in the neighborhood, indicating they were concerned about the neighbors fleeing, not about the sanctity of the land and all it entails. In other words, there is a view that says that the prohibition against providing them space is not a religious prohibition at all. It's commercial. It's concerned that they're going to, to drive us out of business. The opinion of Ramban, Nachmanides, and his disciples that the prohibition of Lotechaneim, not to give them a share in the land, doesn't apply to transactions rooted in the grantor's interests, directly contradicts the position expressed in the letter. There's a view that says that this is only where the, uh, the, where the, um, the transaction is to benefit them and not to help us. In other words, his point is, without going into the nuances of each position he quotes, he says, you took one position. Judaism is not monolithic. There are different perspectives. And there may be a view that says you're not allowed to rent them land, but it's not the only view within Jewish tradition. That's the point that that he makes. Rabbi Herzog also makes a technical argument. He says, these commands, the command to not rent to them, it's in source number nine, or not to sell to them. These commands are communal commands, binding not each individual, but the governing body, the Jewish government in whatever form it takes, which is empowered to fulfill them. It was set from the start only for a Jewish nation, which would conquer the land and receive sovereignty on its own. He says it doesn't apply. We got sovereignty to the land because of the British, right? Because of the British mandate, because we can go back to Balfour, because of the UN, whatever you like. But this isn't that type of government that's responsible to enforce it. And then in source number 10, you find the most uh, interesting position, which is a position taken by many within Jewish law that argues that Christianity is not considered idolatry. It may be considered idolatry for a Jew to say that God took human form or to say that there are multiple God, that there are multiple entities that operate together, however you understand the Trinity, that may be considered idolatry for a Jew. But the argument goes that maybe for a non-Jew to accept the idea that there is a non-corporeal God, there's a non-physical God who created the world, and then to have this idea of joining this God with other gods, some form of Trinity, maybe for non-Jews is not considered to be idolatrous. And therefore there would be no problem with them being in the land. They are observing the seven Noahide laws. So the argument goes within this school of thought, not the pragmatic take of, well, Zionism wants us to be racist, but it doesn't really work. But the argument is, that may actually not be an imperative for us in the first place. It may not apply. It may not apply because there were multiple views within Zionism. It may not apply because it, it doesn't apply to our government today. And it may not apply because certainly Islam is not considered idolatry within Judaism. 
Christianity may not be considered idolatry for non-Jews within, uh, within Judaism. And so that's a second stream of argument. And then there's a third stream of argument, and perhaps in some ways the most important. And that says that philosophically, we're no longer in the same place that we were biblically. The world has changed. Take a look at source number 11. Rabbi Menachem Meiri, writing in 13th century France, says the following. Anyone who is of the nations who are governed by the ways of religion and acknowledge divinity, without a doubt, one may do this, meaning sell them land, rent them land, and so is appropriate. Even if he's not an acquaintance, you have nothing to gain from, from the transaction. Nonetheless, he says, we're not talking about Canaanites, and Judaism has no imperative for us to discriminate against people like this. That's the argument that he made in, uh, in the 13th century. And to provide a more modern version of it, take a look at source number 12. A public letter, also a response to that letter about renting and selling to, uh, to non-Jews. And look at the signatories. Rabbi Chaim Drukman, Rabbi Tzfanya Droy, Rabbi Yaakov Ariel, Rabbi Shlomo Aviner. They're not the only ones. There, there's a longer list, but those are some of the big names who signed on it. And Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu who was the one who started the whole problem. He was the one who had written the letter in Tzfat. He was the rabbi of Tzfat. He might still be today, I'm not sure. uh, But he was the one who wrote the letter in Tzfat, saying don't sell to them and don't rent to them. He recanted. Take a look at source number 12. We recant from the implication of the letter which was published recently, which sounded as though one should discriminate negatively against non-Jewish citizens. It is not so. The state of Israel must relate to all of her citizens with equal rights. This approach is anchored in the Torah of Israel and in the laws of the land. The argument is made um, that no, Zionism does not mandate discrimination, and in fact, we are meant to grant full rights to minorities. And there's basis for it biblically. Take a look at source number 13. Source number 13 is from a story involving a group called the Givonim. To make a long story short, the Givonim were from a Canaanite tribe called the Chivi. They came to the Jews who had entered the land. They did not make a peace treaty when it was offered. They did not say, we're going to accept the Noahide laws. They came up with shtick instead. And what they did was, they came in with stale and moldy bread and with worn-out patched clothing And they said, we've come from far away. We are not of those groups that you're not supposed to make a covenant with. We have arrived here to make a treaty with you. And the Jews say, great, we'd love to have allies. And they sign an agreement with them. And then they discover that actually they live next door. They didn't do the due diligence. They actually live next door, and these are Canaanites. They were fooled into making a pact with them. That source number 13 is just part of the description of, uh, of the, the, the game that they played, the disguise that they made. But what happened when the Jews found out that they had been tricked? Anyone know what happens next? They stuck to the agreement. Even though we were cheated into it, nonetheless, we will honor it. And we take care of them in our midst. So much so that if you take a look at source number 14, generations later, there is a three-year famine in the land. 
This is in the time of King David. King David appeals to God, why is this happening? And God says it's because of Saul, David's predecessor, King Saul, because he killed the Givonim. Now, he didn't actually kill them. The Givonim we're referring to here survived by serving a community of priests, of Kohanim, in a city called Nov. A Jewish city called Nov. And Saul, when he was trying to kill the upstart David, wiped out the population of the city of Nov, the Jewish population of the city of Nov. Why he did that, that's his own story, but he did. Because he wiped out the priests of Nov. So because, because the, the um, sorry, because Saul wipes out the population in Nov, the result is that the Givonim, this tribe, is not able to be supported anymore. The people who are supporting them are gone. And so some of them died of starvation. And the point that I'm bringing here is that the Jews are held responsible by God for what happens to the people of Givon. Even though Givon tricked us into it, we are fundamentally responsible to look after the minorities in our midst. And this supports the idea of that letter that's found in number 12, that we are indeed responsible to look after the minorities among us. So what we've seen, what I hope we, we, we understand here out of all of this, is that the imperative here, which we talked about, which we built up as a problem, the idea of Zionism being inherently racist and requiring that there be discrimination between Jews and non-Jews in the land, is not so clear-cut. The, the statement that Zionism equals racism is simply not so. There is a root to it. There is a basic concern about allowing people who worship religions other than Judaism in the land and the influence they can have on us. But the, the weight of rabbinic opinion in our day, whether for pragmatic reasons, you can't possibly get away with it, whether for technical reasons, there is more than one view on this issue within Jewish law. The, um, or... Christians may not qualify, and Muslims certainly don't qualify, for this discrimination, or whether because philosophically the, the, um, we have an imperative to take, to, to take care of the minorities among us. Whichever avenue I'm going to take, there are voices within the community and leading voices who say that, no, a, a Jewish Zionist government ought not to discriminate along these, uh, ought not to discriminate along these lines. I realize that I monologued for basically half an hour. I apologize. The, um, but but is, that, is that clear? I would love to be able to take questions and comments, but, but I also want to get us started on the, uh, on the next topic. So what I'm going to do is, is table the questions and comments on this, um, take them by email as, uh, you know, as need be, and maybe what I'll do is respond to it in a recording that I'll send out or something like that so we can have that kind of dialogue still take place. But, um, but yeah, I, we, we need to also move on to the next, uh, to the next topic. Is that, is that okay? Okay. Okay, so let's do that. Thank you for understanding.